Would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3 as we come to the final in our installments of this series we've been doing, Doing the Christian Life Together, Uh, God and the World, that we're change agents, we change the world one person at a time, one world at a time. And uh, we want to begin by reading the probably the most iconic passage in the New Testament with regards to God's attitude towards the creation and everything that's part of it, including you and I. If you don't mind standing with me, John chapter 3, I want to begin reading in verse 5. And the text begins where it says that Jesus answered, he was in a conversation with a man by the name of Nicodemus. He was a leader in Israel, both religiously and politically. And Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water, which probably referring to physical birth, and to the Spirit. Because because he says flesh gives birth to flesh, physical birth gives birth to to physical life, but only the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases and you hear its sound. But you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone that is born of the Spirit of God. His point being basically, we don't save ourselves. We can't cause ourselves to be born spiritually. It is a mystery of God when we are born again of the Spirit. Well, Nicodemus' response is, how can this be? And then he answered, you are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, or literally crucified, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. And the word perish literally means utterly and eternally to be destroyed, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. And whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask that You would open Your Word to our hearts and our minds in a way that would really make a difference. We have come here today, Lord, not to simply sing songs or to make offerings or to listen to someone talk. We have come here, Lord, because we are anxious to experience the moving and the working of your Holy Spirit. We invite you, Lord, to touch us, to speak into our lives, to bring truth and light and liberty, Lord. We ask that you would take burdens off of our shoulders and you would fill our hearts with joy, that we might be people who can celebrate with great thankfulness, Lord, your love and kindness for us. Bless this time, we pray, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
When we look at the life of Jesus, we have to understand that Jesus' target was essentially the whole world. That even though he was born in a rather remote place on the planet and didn't travel very far even from the place of his birth, his target was not just simply Nazareth, Capernaum, Galilee, Judea, but he said very early on that his target was the entirety of the world. And as a, sense, as a consequence, he was born for a purpose that his destiny, though, was the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ was ultimately Jesus' destiny. He knew that the only way that the issues that face the world then and even today can ever be resolved is by men coming in faith and submission to the cross of Jesus Christ. And that speaks directly against the nature of man, which always seeks to find the solution within himself. We always try to fix ourselves. I mean, even those of us who are born-again, spirit-filled, faithful Christians, we still find ourselves on a regular basis confronting problems within ourselves or shortcomings, and we start machinating in our own brains, how can I fix me? When the answer really is, we're fixed at the foot of the cross. As Oswald Chambers once said, a man never stands taller than when he is face down at the foot of the cross. That we never reach to a higher place than when we reach on our faces to God in humility and say, God, I can't change me, but you can change me. More importantly, I cannot save myself, but you can save me. So that the real conflict throughout human history has been about whether people are going to be, allow God to be their Savior or they're going to attempt to be their own Savior. Self-salvation. Self-salvation is all about trying to make myself the hero of my own story. I want my life to unfold in a way in which everybody will look at it and say, my, what an impressive individual he or she is. And yet, the way of the cross is also the way down. <laughs> The way up to God is the way down, that I must decrease, John the Baptist said, for he is to increase. Paul said it very clearly. James said it as well. Humble yourself and he will lift you up. And that concept in itself is what makes the gospel really uncomfortable for most people. Because even though you may know the gospel doctrinally and, and even have practiced it in your life, there is always going to be in the backside of your mind this effort of how can I present myself in a way that is flattering to me, in a way that looks good in the eyes of other people. And as a consequence, we often get distracted from the gospel. So that when we think about how God looks at this world that He made, in our mind we often think that God looks at it with a bit of disdain, disgust, and disappointment. We often think as we stumble and fail in our own walks with God that Jesus is standing there next to the Father and saying, uh, uh, I'm not claiming Him, you know, I, I don't know who He is. You know, we, we often have that kind of feeling that God doesn't want to really be identified with us. And so we don't have bumper stickers on our cars because we know how we drive. You know, we, we're, we're really reluctant to tell people, well, I'm a follower of Jesus for fear that they'll say, since when? Because we realize that there is this, this fallenness about us. And we assume that because there's this fallenness about us, that God doesn't really look at us with a loving heart, 
even though if you've read the Gospels, you find just the opposite is repeated repeatedly by Jesus himself. Then chapters like Luke chapter 15, where he begins by saying, there was a lost sheep. He left the 99 to find that one that was lost and trying to say to you, that's how much the Father values you that he'd leave all others to find you. You are so precious to him. About the woman who loses the coins and she searches until she finds it and then he, she finds it and throws a party. And in the, both those incidents, Jesus says, and this is how the angels of heaven react. They rejoice, they party, they celebrate when one sinner comes to repentance. So precious in God's sight. And then last of all, from the lost sheep to the lost coin, he goes on to the lost son who even though he is rebellious and disobedient and within Judaic law of the day, he deserved to be taken out and stoned and executed for his behavior. And yet when he turns back, his father doesn't even wait for him. But he says his father, seeing him afar off, seeing him afar off, runs to him and throws his arms around him, even though his father, dressed in his regal garments, is wrapping him those garments around a body that is stained with the mud and the fecal matter of pigs that his son has been feeding and living with and eating with. He lowers himself to this disgusting place of uncleanness that he might go to where his son was rather than waiting for his son to fix himself. And this message is repeated over and over and over and over again. And that somehow it gets lost because we have locked in our nature this idea that you have to earn it, that you have to be good enough. So when we say God so loved the world, the picture that is drawn for us by John is a, a, a father who is lovingly looking at this newborn infant that is really created in his own image. He, he looks at this baby in the nursery and says, he's got my eyes. She's got my nose. Those are our ears. And you go through all of that parenting thrill of realizing this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is me in my image. I see myself reflected. And you fall in love with that which you have created. And so that when John says he loves this world, he's talking about the love and the passion he finds for you, that as he looks upon you right now, regardless of what took place 10 minutes ago, or regardless of what you might have been doing last night, and regardless of the attitude that you may have had in the doing of whatever that was, his love for you never has altered or changed one bit, because you're still his child. Reading an interview by Katy Perry's father, who, interesting, Katy Perry ra raised by a, a father who's a preacher and in a Christian home. Uh, now she complains, she says she's an atheist and believes in, in uh, horoscopes, and, and uh, which if you've ever watched her perform, shouldn't surprise you. But he said, talked about the sadness of people worshiping her, and he said they're worshiping the wrong thing, and his wife and him pray for her, but they maintain this relationship with their daughter, this loving relationship, because he says, she's our daughter, and we love her. You know, and it's an amazing thing when you see that expressed, because what is being expressed in that loving acceptance of a child that goes so far away from your heart and, and embraces a lifestyle that's so contradictory, and yet you continue to love them, what you are really beginning to do is reflect the Father's heart for each and every one of us. 
that we remain precious in His sight. Now, my wife and I have 12 and a half grandkids, you know, they still have one in the oven. And, um, you know, and when you get that many, I remember talking to Kay Smith one time, and she was talking about, we got 19 grandkids, and we were going on, she says, well, she says, I open up the, the Orange County Register, and they're doing a whole article on tattoo artists, and, he says, and she says, I'm looking at it, and suddenly I realize this girl whose body is covered with tattoos is my granddaughter. And she says, I, I just thought, where did we go wrong? And I said, Kay, one out of 19 ain't bad. <laughs> Those are pretty good odds, you know. And she said, yeah, I guess you're right. You know, it's a way of perspective. But one of those things that you realize that things would happen. But do you stop loving them? If you do, then you've hardened your heart against your own self. Your love never changes. You don't have to be happy with how they're doing it but you love Him. And, and if we can understand that, we can begin to understand, we can build a bridge to how God views us even more perfectly. But He never stops loving you. In fact, it is His very love for us that causes the grief and the sadness in our hearts. But what we see happening today is a real challenge confronting the church. Because we live in a culture that is shifting and changing, as cultures always do, and what we find is that we are entering into what many refer to as a, a post-Christian era. We may be in that post-Christian era far more deeply than we recognize. In fact, Tim Keller in his book, Jesus the King, makes this observation. He said, in the next 50 years, the center of Christianity is predicted, predicted to shift away from the U.S. Church historian Andrew Walls explains why. He says, there is a certain vulnerability, a fragility at the heart of Christianity. You might say that this is the vulnerability of the cross. And then Keller goes on to explain. He says, the heart of the gospel is the cross. And the cross is all about giving up power, pouring out resources, and serving. And when Christianity is in a place of power and wealth for a long period, the radical message of sin and grace and the cross become muted and even lost. And nobody says, he goes, then Christianity starts to transmute into a nice, safe religion, one that's for respectable people who try to be good. And eventually it becomes virtually dormant in those places and the center moves to somewhere else. So that today, where we look at Western Europe, the, used to be the center of Christianity for, for many decades, there's only 1% of people who attend church. In the United States, those numbers are drifting downward as well. And yet in places like Africa, which 100 years had 1% Christians, now numbers as many as 50% of the continent profess themselves to be Christian. South America is growing exponentially in conversions. China has gone to the level of hundreds and hundreds of millions. India, which once had maybe 1% believers, now is registering or is believed to be someplace between 12 and 15% of the population have converted to Christianity. When you're talking about 1.2 billion people, that's a lot of people. So Christianity is exploding throughout Asia and through South America and Africa, and it is withering on the vine in America and is almost extinct in much of Europe. But it's happening here in, in, in subtle ways. In fact, 
Uh, <laughs> social scientist Christian Smith interviewed about 9,000 teenagers about their religious beliefs, and he found that among those who professed to be Christians, that they held to kind of four core beliefs that really have absolutely nothing to do and even contradict the message of Christianity. That they believe, number one, that uh, God is uninvolved. He's an uninvolved problem solver. God created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth, they write. He is not particularly involved in a person's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. So when you ask the average person under 30 years of age today, they believe there's a God, they believe there's a creator, they may even say, I believe in the Bible, but the point is that God is kind of there on call. He's not really personal, present, involved. He's just there when you need them. So we can throw out a prayer and say, hey, God, we need rescue at this moment, and, and God may likely show up, no guarantee, but He's not really totally involved. But secondly, they believe it's all about being good, that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and also by most of the world's religions. The thirdly, they, mean, they believe that God wants everybody to be happy, that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And fourthly, good people go to heaven when they die. No questions asked. Smith summarized his findings by saying this. He says, it's not so much that U.S. or American Christianity is being secularized, Rather, it is subtly degenerating into a pathetic version of itself and displaced by a different religious faith. And I love this statement. He says that we see God as a teacher on the playground who steps in only when things get out of control. Steps in only when things get out of control. In fact, when things do get out of control and he doesn't step in immediately, say, for example, let me give a wild illustration. The electricity goes off and it doesn't come back on for 10 days. Something like that strange happens. We begin to wonder, where are you, God? Where are you? How could you let this happen to moi? That in many thinking today that Jesus is reduced to a role model, a pattern, a, a figurehead of a religion. And we want to basically embrace Jesus without embracing his bride. The Christianity of people like Kathy, Katy Perry, who, again, who says that she's not religious, she's spiritual. And you hear this more and more, I'm, I'm a spiritual person, I'm not religious. Or Marcus Mumford with Mumford & Sons, the music group, he was raised in a Christian home, but now he says he's not, he's not into Christianity, he's into faith. It's interesting because that's almost like saying, you know, I'm really into being married, I'm just not into my wife. And you go, What? Well, I'm really, I really love the idea of being married. I just, I'm just not into having a wife. I mean, the guy idea of being married is great, I, and, and I just don't want to have to be involved. 
Now, I know that sounds like some of you already, so I'm sorry. But <laughs> many of the women are going, oh, I married that guy. <laughs> He's got to watch the pre-football, pre-pre-football show before he gets to the pre-football show. You know, anyway, but it's, it's this crazy concept. I mean, it's the idea that if I have a bride, I, want, I don't separate that. And so there's this breaking away of, yes, Jesus, church, no. Now, I got to admit, Jesus' bride sometimes is pretty doggone ugly. A lot of times she shows up and she's not clean and she's not pretty and she doesn't even smell real good. She may be the body of Christ, but she has the body odor of Christ as well. And we, we struggle with that. And so we say, oh, I don't want to be associated with that. But as we've said over the past weeks, how does Christianity really work if we don't associate? Jesus said again how, you know, they will know you're my disciple, that you're truly my follower, if you love one another. And that means that the most incumbent commandment upon us is to love the people who are in this room right now. Even loving some people who may be in the other service that you come to this one because you want to avoid their interacting with them. I, I say that half-jokingly. But we're coming to a kind of a designer kind of Christianity. It's all about us rather than about God. It's about loving ourselves first and foremost with a kind of devotion, really, that is supposed to be reserved for God. So when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength, he wasn't just spouting words because they had a theological sound. He, he was saying, this is the first and the greatest of all the commandments that God gives that you would love him. But you see, there's also another view that's coming out too, is that serious faith is something that is considered to be dangerous in fact, Hayden Shaw writes in his book on generations, Generational IQ, he says, Today people are convinced that the only way for people to get along is if no one has strong conviction that their beliefs are true. That if you have a strong conviction that your belief is true, you are put in the category of either mentally unstable or else you're a jihadist of some shape or form and certainly you're dangerous to the rest of us. Believe whatever you want, just don't believe it completely or seriously. And certainly don't talk openly. And this creates a challenge, if not a conflict, for you and I as followers of Jesus, because Jesus really was very clear, the Bible is very clear, that we are to have a strong, a single-minded, radically committed faith, a faith that follows Jesus and proclaims His message to the ends of the earth, whether it's carrying that message across the dinner table or across the world, it's a message that we are given as the great commission. So we have the great commandment, which is to love God and to love one another, and we have the great commission, which is to take the message of God's love for us to the ends of the earth, beginning with the person who's sitting right next to you. And that great commission that he gave us is repeatedly repeated by Jesus. You know the passages. I won't labor over them again. But he tells us, go, preach, teach, baptize, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded. And we ask the question, so what did he command us? 
And the answer is given in various places, but Matthew 16, 24 is probably one of the simplest. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There are three words in there that really trouble me. Deny, not on the top of my list of things I like to do. But deny myself. That means that if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, there are certain things that I may have an inclination to. They may not even be bad things. They may be good or okay things. But God just simply says to me, that's not for you. That means that sometimes I want to spend my time and my energy doing one thing, and God says, no, I really want you to spend it over here. Inherently, this idea of following Him means that I go where He's going, not necessarily where I want to go with my life. That secondly, that I take up His cross. That meant so much more in His day than it does in ours. To us, taking up our cross may be simply going down to our favorite jeweler and buying a beautiful uh, diamond-studded cross to hang around our neck. But it certainly didn't mean that in His day. What it meant was to really walk a path that was painful and ultimately led to your own death. It's really Jesus saying of Himself, my destiny is the cross. And if you're going to be a follower of mine, you have to understand that your ultimate destiny is to be offered on the sacrifice, on the altar of His service. And then there's the issue of follow me, that one of the things if we read the Gospels, we find that Jesus went places and did things that His disciples did not want to share in. They didn't want to go romping into the temple, making a, a whip of cords and driving the merchants out and knocking over. They didn't want to go there and do that. We see Jesus doing it by himself. We do not read, and the gospels, uh, the disciples did the same. No, they're back in the crowd watching it and going, oh, stink, we are going to get in so much trouble. As we see, when he is arrested, they do not follow him, but they run and they hide behind locked doors and shuttered windows. But Jesus said, you have to understand that only when you come to that place that you're saying, Lord, I, I'm, I live to follow you, do you begin to grasp it? Because he goes on to explain to us, he says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. The man who sets out and says, my goal in life is to be happy will never be happy. Have you ever known anybody said, I just want to be happy? Whoever said to you one day, you know what? I always wanted to be happy, and now I'm happy. Or if they said it, they said, now I'm happy. Up, oh, it's gone, starting all over again. Because happiness is so elusive. We don't even know it when we got it. I could sit sitting there in the freezing in the dark and say, I'll be so happy when the electricity comes back on. And when it did... At 1.30 in the morning, and my wife felt it her mission to wake me and tell me the good news. <laughs> I tried to be happy. <laughs> she was happy. <laughs> but by 8 o'clock the next day, it was like, oh yeah, electricity's on. And like it never happened. It's a strange, crazy thing. But he goes on and says, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world? yet forfeits his soul. What can a man give 
in exchange for his soul because Jesus said, let's talk about ultimate issues here. Let's not talk about momentary ones. And this is really where I think many of us as Christians get confused. God is looking at your life at the ultimate expression, at its end, at its conclusion as part of this earthly journey. He knows that this is all that matters, not necessarily the moments in between, but what happens in the last plays of the game of life. What happens in those last moments? That's what really matters. And he says, but if you live your life for just the moments in between, you'll miss the big ending. Let me address really the problems biblically from the view that's being held by many people. Beginning with this idea that God is this uninvolved problem solver. There's nothing further from what God says about Himself than that idea, because in Jeremiah 29, 11, for example, He says, for I know the plans I have for you. In fact, three times in this passage, He talks about His plans that He has for you. The plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. He says, I have plans for you. Do you think of your life like that? Do you wake up in the morning and saying, I believe that by faith God has a plan for my life? When you talk to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, has it ever occurred to you saying, you know what, God has a plan for your life that's so far superior to anything that you could ever craft. God has a plan for your life. Because that's what he says, I have a plan for your life. And it's a good plan. And it's a plan that will bring joy and blessing into your life. It'll give you hope. It will give you a future worth living for. See, some of us are afraid of the future because we feel the future isn't going to be something we're going to want to be in. And God makes us a promise, says, I'm, I've got a future plan for you, and it's going to be beyond anything that you ever imagined. It may not be wealth, riches, fame, and glory, but it will be a future that you'll look at and say, my life was well-lived and worthwhile, and it mattered because I followed His plan. Because he says, when you, do that, when you realize that I have a plan for you, what happens? Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And guess what? I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. This idea of God being uninvolved has the effect of making us not involve God. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I didn't pray because I don't think God cares about these kinds of things. So I've had people criticize me for park, praying for parking places. I'm sorry. I prayed for good seats in restaurants or at different events and stuff. God, let us get a really good seat, a really good place. I apologize. He hears my prayers more often than he doesn't. Why is that? Because God says, I want you to call out to me. But there's so many people that live as if God is only involved in certain major things in my life. When God says, I'm involved in the very molecular interaction in the most secret places of your body and mind, I don't miss a detail. He says as much. When Paul writes to the Athenians and he says, God who made the world and everything in it and made every nation of men and determine the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men should seek Him 
and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each of us. For in Him we live, move, and have our being. Why do you think New Year's Eve, we always do this uh, I know it's prophecy update. We're talking about things that are going on in the world and how they relate to things that are foretold uh, in the Bible. And the reason we can do that is because God has already predetermined nations and times and events. They are not things He's throwing out there and saying, you know, this has about an 85 to 90% chance of actually happening. No, He says, it's going to happen 100%. These things are going to take place. Lift up your eyes and see your salvation coming to you, he says. God's saying, I'm, I'm so involved, you have no idea how involved I am. And when we go through difficulties, we like to pull back and say, well, I don't want to blame God for this. Well, it's not a matter of blaming God, but it's finding God in it. God, you allowed this in my life. What did you allow it for? What is the work that you want to do in my life that will cause me to do what you say, that I might reach out to you? That when that debilitating illness comes in your body, God, I can reach out to you or I can reach out for something else. But it wouldn't be there if you didn't want me to use it to reach out to you. That's why in Hebrews 4.13, he says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered, laid bare before the eyes of Him in whom we must give account. Not only does He have a plan, not only is He intimately involved, but I'm going to be held accountable to my faithfulness to that plan. So minute is the detail that He says in Matthew 10.30, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, even the very hairs of your head. Well, I know some of you are saying, well, it's, uh, that's an easier task for me than for some people. But it's simply just a colloquialism that they use to say it's the, it's the minutest of involvement and detail. There's nothing that doesn't touch your, that touches your life. God isn't intimately involved with. So to say he's uninvolved is the first step towards blaspheming his very nature and disinvolving him. That secondly, it's, people think it's about being good. But Romans 3.10 tells us, as the Scripture says, no one is good, not even one. No one is seeking God. All have turned away from God. So that when somebody says, well, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, what that means is that I am seeking my own religious experience. I'm not really seeking God. Then he goes on to say, their talk is foul, their speech is filled with lies, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, and they do not know what true peace is. They have no fear of God to restrain them. There's no fear of God. There's no sense that my actions will have consequences. There's no sense that there's an accountability in all of this. My wife and I had this discussion last night about a situation. We were talking about how somebody who is a Christian and, and continues to make choices that deepen the hole that they're in. You know, it's, you know that old adage, when you're in a hole, stop digging. And, and, and we watch this person just continually making the same choices and and, they're, they're, and we, we, we recognize the problem is they don't connect 
their actions with God. They think they can do these things that God says don't do and it won't somehow come home. And yet God says, know this for sure in Numbers 23, 32. Know this for sure. Your sins will find you out. It just has a way of coming home. The chickens always return to the roost. And that's why it says in Romans 3.20 that therefore no one will be declared righteous or nice or good in his sight by doing good things, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus put it very simply. He said, why do you call me good? There is none who is good but God. So the idea, God just wants us all to be good people implies that somehow there is such a thing in the purest sense. That doesn't mean you can't do good things. It doesn't mean that you can't have good thoughts. But I'll tell you something, if you really spend some time navel-gazing, and it isn't always bad, sometimes you need to get some lint out, but if you really find, spend some time navel-gazing, one of the things you realize is even in my most altruistic moments of kindness and goodness, there is this part of me that, is, that corrupts that. That you know, it's giving the gift that's unexpected. And somebody goes, oh, I can't believe you did that. And you think, well, you know, I just prayed and God showed me to do that. And so I got this for you and I'm so happy you love it. Oh, I love it. It's wonderful. Well, thank you. Oh, and you're so wonderful. Yeah, I am. <laughs> and I don't know, it just kind of came to me. It was God, but there's an openness in me that God can speak into and probably explains why you didn't do the same for me. Uh, because I always buy a gift that I would like for myself. And you done with that yet? There's this thing in our human nature that just always seems to bring it always back to us. You know, so I, and, and people can be so ungrateful. I remember my youngest son, when he was three, we had opened the Christmas presents. The tree was piled high with presents because, uh, you know, but there were one or two for the rest of the family, and the rest, the mountain of things, was his. Now, honestly, when you're going and buying things at a dollar store, you can get a lot of stuff. But nonetheless, he spends hours. After we're all done eating dinner, he's still opening presents, you know, and it's going on. And he goes into his room with his cache of goodies, and three hours later, I'm sitting there reading the newspaper, and he walks out of his bedroom and comes up to me and says, as the three-year-old only could say, I want more. And I, I said to him, you stinking, selfish little... No. <laughs> and I just, at that moment, I thought to myself, he has a sin nature, <laughs> and it's only going to blossom. <laughs> because that's the way we are. That the idea that somehow there's this pure goodness that come out of it always gets corrupted by our humanity. But thirdly, the idea, the goal of life is to be happy. <laughs> Again, I, we read Matthew 16, 24, where he says that the, the goal of our life should be to live a life of self-denial, of carrying his cross and following him. Jesus warned, he says in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. In 2 Timothy 3, 12, he says, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So if you follow him, there's going to be persecution 
There's going to be a, 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 a hurtful pursuit, literally the term means there, that there'll be people who are pursuing you with the intent of doing you harm. He says, no, this is going to happen for sure. And then Paul says in Romans 8, 17, if we are children, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, that we may also share in His glory. Again, the idea that the purpose of life is to be happy, wherein truthfully the, the, the purpose of life is to be holy, to be wholly His, wholly possessed by God. And that you don't experience necessarily happiness, but you do experience joy. And they are very different things because happiness is dependent upon circumstances aligning in just the way that you want them to happen. Joy is a... a a celebration inside the soul that happens even when things are going horribly wrong on every level. When disappointment comes into your life and failure overtakes your pathway and, and things seem to be crumbling around you, there is a place called joy that simply says, because you belong to me, this doesn't really matter. And even the worst of events will not define you because you are defined by me. That you are defined by him. Do you get the freedom that comes with that idea? I just really messed that up. And yet that failure is not the thing that will define me for all my life or for eternity. But I am defined by the fact that I belong to Jesus. He loves me that much. And that fourthly, Maybe the most neutralizing of all to the church is the idea that all good people go to heaven. Now, if we go back to realizing that <laughs> there's no such thing, Paul said, as somebody who is truly good, but Mark puts it very simply when he says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Without taking a lot of time doing word studies, you have to understand that the whole idea of what we call expositional constancy, when we call it, follow things through this text, this refers to utter, complete, absolute, eternal destruction. It's talking about a place called H-E double hockey sticks. It's hell. It's separation from God. It's being eternally lost. It's, it's, it's for the, it really summarizes the very reason why Jesus came. He said in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And this is, I think, really the most damaging theological error of the whole lot. Because in the end of the day, if people can self-save themselves, they can be their own savior, if they can earn their eternal life by being good enough, uh, if being happy is all that matters, uh, those are all taking you in bad directions. But at the end of the day, what really anchors that deception is the idea that in, when it comes to the eternal issues, it does not matter. And Jesus and, and, and the New Testament writers and the Old Testament writers all say with terrible accuracy and clarity, it matters. It's really what everything in the end hangs upon, that people who die without Jesus go to eternity that defies human vocabulary to describe it. It defies the ability and its horribleness to find words that really could summarize it. 
It's a terrorizing concept. So that in an age where people are petrified by the terrorists and the terror that might show up in their backyard, we overlook the most terrifying reality that people are dealing with and are plunging into every single day. They die without Jesus. And if there's anything that speaks to the impotence of the church in regards to its relationship to the world, is that we don't take that completely seriously. We may accept it theologically. We may even embrace it traditionally. But when we look out on the shopping mall with people fervently, furiously running around from sale to sale and deal to deal as if their very soul depends on making the best buy, and we never step back and look at this mass of humanity and saying, if they don't know Jesus, they will perish eternally. And that really is what matters here. Because what I find is that we don't pray for these people. We don't. I mean, a little self-disclosure. I mean, my wife and I went for years being so busy in ministry and praying for ministry things that we overlooked a whole section of our family. And a few years back, we started praying every morning and every night, going name by name by name by name, because we're realizing all these family members who are aging and coming to the end of their journey, who do not know Jesus, even some of them are such Christ deniers and haters of the gospel and believe all sorts of wacky, weird things. They're waiting for UFOs to snatch them away, talking about taking faith. And we just begin to pray, God, don't let them perish in their sin. And it's amazing when we started doing that, what started happening. People started, I mean, just random things. We started running into relatives and conversations, and it was just amazing. The Christians in our family began to become more fervent in their faith, and, and the non-Christians began to get circled. Because the one thing that God is most concerned with is that people... Don't leave this place without Jesus. And if there is something that is a deficiency in us, it's because somehow we have been also persuaded that there's got to be a backdoor entrance someplace. There's got to be a, a place where people can sneak in and not have to pay the price of admission. And Jesus, He doesn't have parables. We don't even have time to go into it where He makes it very clear that that doesn't exist either. When he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and there is no way to the Father but by me. When, when, when Peter says, under, there is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. You either not only think about that intellectually, but you begin to contemplate it practically. What does this mean? Who is there in my life? that I encounter every day who falls into that category. They have not believed. They have rejected Him. And there are those people that you and I are guilty of. Well, they're so far gone, I'm not going to even bother. What a mistake. I've seen people who are beyond reaching get reached. Even if it's on their deathbed, somehow they get reached. We have to become people who are passionate about that. Why does this matter so much? Because God says, 
I love this world. I love it so much that I gave my one and my only son, the most valuable, precious thing I had. I gave him up that he might save people from perishing. Because they live in a condemned world. I love them because they live in a condemned world. Isn't that what 2 Peter 3.10 says? Seeing that all of this shall be dissolved. Everything that, we're, everything that we cling to, everything we cherish, everything we it's all going to be dissolved. It's all going to be vaporized in a moment, and it's going to just kind of not be all of a sudden. And God says, I have, because I have in plan for you a new heaven and a new earth. I have a new heaven, a new earth. You know what we're like? It's like having a father who says, if you invite me over to your house, I want to bring you a new car. And your response is, well, this Yugo has been good for me. <laughs> and and I, I'm, I'm sure it's got another 10,000 miles on it. So, I, you know, I appreciate that. But this Yugo, this is some, you know, how many of you don't even know what a Yugo is? How many of you know what a Lada is? How many of you know what a Volga is? Put them all together and you've got half a car. But <laughs> people who own them have <laughs> grease on their hands and wrenches in their pockets <laughs> because that's what it takes. I mean, you, you just look at that person saying, are you out of your mind? He says, well, if you don't want this new Cayenne uh, diesel, I mean, that's okay. If you prefer the Yugo, that's fine. And we would look at somebody like that and saying, there's either something very wrong with you or there's no another choice. You just something very right wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes my words get ahead of my brain. But Jesus, Paul put it so simply when he said there's salvation found in no other. So that whoever believes, even though now he or she may now be condemned, they will not be condemned. But they will receive eternal life if they just believe. We're temporary residents here, Lord, friends. And, and you know, our life is merely a vapor and it's going to pass away. My wife, dear wife, said to me last night as we were sitting down to pray, she says, do you realize how fast this week went by? And I said, don't they all? <laughs> you know, I used to, you know, used to use a calendar to mark the days. Now I use my calendar for a fan. It's like, it's just, it's going to be over very, very quickly. We are watching this TV show on CNN. They're going through all the things that happened in the 70s. I don't know if you watched that series, and I realized that I was not awake for most of the 70s, but, <laughs> or coherent or something. But as I was watching all this thing, I said, you know, it's amazing. It just feels like that was yesterday, and yet that was over three decades. It's ancient history. What is your life? And that's why God says, you know, I want you to make your decisions today based upon the final minutes, the final seconds 
not based upon the first quarter. Little Seahawks metaphor here. <laughs> I'd say cougar metaphor, but that didn't work last week. <laughs> Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak into our lives in a way that stirs us, Lord. I, I pray that my brothers and sisters, myself included, that we would allow ourselves to be stirred, Lord, not by guilt, not by shame, not by remorse and failure or all that stuff, but we'd be stirred by the passion that comes from the possibilities that are available to us. That, Lord, we are on this earth for a reason. You, you're allowing us to be here to suck air right now because you want us to live in this world and to impact it to pray for it, to care about it, to lift up our eyes, to look on those fields, to see that they are white and ready to be harvested, to recognize that there are multitudes, multitudes of people who are never really made a decision. There's a whole generation growing up who doesn't even understand that they are sinners separated from God that they can only find peace, that they can only find joy, and they can only find true, lasting salvation through your Son, Jesus. God, I pray that you would just stir us, that we would not be that complacent Christians who become virtually dormant, as Keller said, that we become this pathetic imitation of what Christianity really is. But there would be vibrancy, there would be life, Lord. There would be excitement, there would be thrill. There would be earnestness, Lord. That there would be that emptying of ourselves in our efforts to follow you faithfully. Move in us by your spirit, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. As we spend these last moments together in worship, we invite you to come up and if you're a believer, to partake of the elements of communion. And I do say if you're a believer, you, you may be spiritual, you may be religious, but this is uh, something that's very symbolic and important to us as believers because when we partake of it, we are making a statement about our faith. We, we embrace that Christ's body was given for us we don't save ourselves. He saved us by the giving of His own body. He presented His body in the most literal sense as a living sacrifice that was crucified upon the cross. And the cup is His blood that was shed as blood was required for the remission of sin under the Old Testament law. And sometimes we look at that rule backwards. We're saying, why in the world would they, God create a system where there was bloody sacrifice necessary as if the law preceded Christ's death on the cross when in fact the law was written to foreshadow Christ's death on the cross. That before the heavens and the earth were created, we're told in Revelations 12 that Jesus Christ was already in the mind of the Father crucified. That he was going to give his life, he was going to shed his blood on the cross. As Jesus said, this is my destination, this is my destiny, is the cross. To do for mankind what mankind cannot do for themselves. And when we partake of these elements, we are declaring, I recognize that He gave His body for me. Therefore, if I partake of this, I'm saying, and I in response am giving my body to Him. That He gave up His life by pouring out His blood, and I in turn surrender whatever life I have, 
whatever moments, whatever shape or form that's going to take, I surrender it to you, Lord, and I'm yours. That's what we're saying when we partake of these elements. And so if you are a believer, if you believe that to be true, if you believe that's incumbent upon you because you are a believer, then I urge you to come and partake of these elements and confess that to the Father. Just ratify that truth in your life by your actions. If you don't know Jesus, then you need to understand you need to know Jesus. You're not going to get to heaven by being a good person being nice and playing fair. That you're not going to get into heaven. You are going to spend eternity in hell in an indescribable horribleness. And that the only one who can really change that is you. God has made the provision. He's opened the way. He says, here it is. But you're the only one who can make any difference by simply saying, I accept what you have done for me because I can't do anything else for myself except simply say, I accept. I accept. I receive you, Jesus. If you haven't done that, then I challenge you, I call upon you today to take that step of faith, not to put it off and say, well, we can wait till a more convenient time. Believe me, I did that a lot before I became a Christian. There is no more convenient time. Giving up your life for Jesus is always inconvenient but you're always thankful that you did when you finally did. For some of you, there needs to be a, really a recommitting of your life to what you know is true. You've, you, you may be here every Sunday and you may be doing all the right things, but you know that there's a gap in your life between what you know and the way you're choosing to live. You stopped following him because you didn't like where it was going. You stopped following because you didn't like what happened when you did. And so you pulled back in what the writer of Hebrews called an evil heart of unbelief. You need to repent of that and say, Father, I'm sorry. Jesus, forgive me. And you need to recommit your life to following him. And others of you have never done that, but today you can. I'll be up here in front. There'll be other people in the wings who'll be glad to talk with you. We'd be glad to pray with you about whatever you want to pray with, pray about. But most importantly, if you don't know Jesus, you need to know Jesus. You really need to have his salvation inside of you, not just around you. Maybe you came with a friend, family member, somebody else induced you to come. This is where the conversation sometimes starts. And I usually say to somebody, well, if you came with a friend, ask them to tell you about Jesus. Let's change that up a little bit. Instead of asking them, why don't, if you brought somebody who's not a Christian, you need to say, so, hmm? <laughs> However you may awkwardly or graciously do that, I'd rather do it wrong than not to do it at all, which is usually the way I do it, <laughs> but nonetheless. Many people are waiting for somebody just to invite them to come.